let's jump right into this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I know we read this every week, but we're going to continue to do that. We're, we're tailing off towards the end of this series. But here's the thing. What this just told us is that if you eliminate this, you are ill-equipped. This is all that matters. This is the foundation of our faith. What we know about God, we have found in here. What you know about God from your experience may be wrong. Because just because you have a goosebump or something happens to you does not mean that it is a supernatural experience from God. It may be supernatural, but it's not the good kind. The problem we have in today's culture is we are looking for those feelings. We're looking for something that touches, something tangible that we can equate and say, yes, God is real and this happened and all of that. In other words, have you ever noticed that when something good happens to somebody... God came through for me. Every time I'm praying for something, God came. Man, God is good. The problem is, is His goodness is not a response to what's going on in your life. His goodness is a part of His character, right? You guys get what I'm saying? The thing is, is we've got to understand is we're looking for something that moves us. And the problem is if you're always moving and chasing these feelings and these things that are going on, you're going to miss God completely because everything you need to know is found in here. Now, God will move in your life supernaturally through words, through, through actions, through supernatural occurrences, whatever they may be, but the foundation of all of that is found here. In other words, if, if Connie, because she's been doing this, so bear with me, I'm not getting on, you just, just work with me here, Connie, okay? Connie's good, she knows where I'm going. If Connie just comes up and just starts speaking some language and we don't know what's going on and she just gives some word, how do we know that that's from God? We don't, right? Anybody can do that. Do it out of your own head. You can make it up. We don't know the difference. But what makes it real is the fact that we find that laid out in Scripture, a pattern of which we can follow. You guys see what I'm saying? So in other words, just because I pray for somebody and they fall down, does that mean God touched them? No. Does that mean God didn't touch them? No. What does that mean? Well, see how they stand up. That's what matters. I'll tell you a funny story. I watched a guy get prayed for one time, fell on the ground. A couple minutes later, he was snoring. <laughs> Listen, these floors aren't that comfortable. Maybe he needed some rest. I don't know. That's not, not for me to judge. But the thing is, is that we've got to get back to the foundation of the Word. What the Word says matters. Your interpretation of it doesn't. What does it say does. And that's the problem, is we're all over the map. So let's go to Matthew chapter 4. We read this last week. Let's read it again. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days and nights, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now what do we know? We see the temptation come. All right. Is this a temptation to sin? I mean, if you can turn stones into bread, good for you. I don't, I don't see any thou shalt nots to that. Now, if you can turn stones to bread, I would suggest you turn them to Doritos. We'd all be a lot happier with you. But be that as it may, the bottom line is this, is that there was nothing sinful in this, but he responded with what? The Scriptures. What Scriptures? Scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Every commandment which I have commanded you today, you must care, be careful to observe. 
that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you and to know that what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and he allowed you to hunger. He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers, that he might make you know that man should not live by bread alone. There's our quote. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now here's the question for you. What if we began to respond to every situation in our life like Jesus did right there? In other words, we respond with every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. What would that do to our daily lives? What would that do to our influence in the world? What would that do when fear comes on us or an anxiety comes on or any of the other itties that are out there right now? What would that do if we responded in kind of what God said, just like Jesus did? What if we began to follow his example? What would happen? It changed things, wouldn't it? In other words, we're not moved by what we see. We're not moved by what we feel. Was Jesus? What do you think he felt like? Bring on the bread. How about some butter? A little Alfredo sauce to dip it in. Come on, I'm not alone. I mean, what's he moved by? Hunger. 40 days, 40 nights, right? That's a long time. Did he have the ability to turn stones into bread? Let's assume so. Not much of a temptation if it's not. So here's the thing. How did he respond? He responded with what the Word of God said. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God should be how we live. If that's true, then we need to begin to look at life a little bit differently. We can't respond from a fearful position. We can't respond from trepidation. We can't respond to anything that's going on outside of how God has said it. And so with that, let's look at Matthew chapter 8 because we've been focused on the idea of healing. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, we see uh, Matthew quote Isaiah 53. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He cast out the spirits with the word. He healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities, and he bore our sicknesses. So in other words, the works that Jesus was doing, Matthew took it as a fulfillment of the prophecy by Isaiah that Jesus upon himself would take away infirmities and bear our sicknesses. How did he do that? Well, he cast out all the demons and he healed all who were sick. That tells me that the fulfillment of that prophecy is found in the works that Jesus did ultimately upon the cross because we see on the next verse that it's by his stripes we are healed. We've gone into that the last few weeks. Looking at that, understanding what the Hebrew says, how those words don't mean what you think they mean, it matters how they're interpreted, and it matters that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Not your experience. Not what you've necessarily been taught. All I care is what does Scripture say. What we see, and what Jim said this morning, which is very good, in reading the Bible, is like, huh. Seems that God wants us to be healed, but we're not. we got to deal with that. So we're going to deal with that a little bit today. We're going to do a little cow tipping, all right? Anybody ever done cow tipping? Anybody ashamed to admit that they've done some cow tipping? Anybody see Tommy Boy? All right. Detroit people, is that what you said? Yeah, that's true. You're not wrong there, but I moved away when I was one, so we're good. I'm, I've got street cred, y'all. I was born in Detroit, all right? So, just so you know. So, we've got to begin to look at these spiritual 
cows, these, these things that we have that we hold so dear that we ask the question, if God heals today, we've got some questions to answer because let's face it, not everybody gets healed. Why that is, I don't know. We'll have to dig into that. Because if it's God's will, isn't he just going to automatically do it? There's a lot of things we've got to begin to break down. And so when you hear the argument against Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 53 and it being involved with sickness, here's some questions that often come up. Why did Jesus leave people sick? Why didn't uh, Paul heal Timothy or Trophimus? Why didn't Epaphroditus get sick? What about Paul himself? He had a thorn in the flesh and it appears it was some sort of an eye disease. These are questions that we get asked and I get thrown back in my face often. Beginning to look at this. Because why? What are they trying to prove? Well, God doesn't heal. Why would you try to prove that? Why would you be opposed to that? That notion? I don't know. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these first three today. We're going to deal with the last two next week. And I'm going to throw in a bonus one for you. Not even going to charge you extra. Isn't that nice of me? It's my birthday. I'm feeling generous. What can I say? So now I have to give you guys a term that you probably have never heard, but you've heard of the term logical fallacies. These are something that basically is that when we're using logic, we have to make sure that the logic stands true no matter where we go with it. So in other words, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you don't get to pick and choose which parts are true. It's true or it's not true. There's a church down in Tennessee that just rejected this as the Word of God. Okay? They came out gay-affirming a few years ago, and now they say that this is not the Word of God. All this captures is people trying to express their uh, interaction with God. Here's a question. How do they know that? So we, again, not getting into the weeds on this, we have to begin to look at these uh, logical fallacies. And the, and the one I'm going to show you today is called this. It's the anecdotal evidence fallacy. All right? Now, I know you knew this is where I was going, right? Because you were prepared for this. The anecdotal evidence fallacy. What does that mean? All right, here's the definition of it. In place of logical evidence, this fallacy substitutes examples from someone's personal experience. Arguments that rely heavily on anecdotal evidence tend to overlook the fact that one possibly isolated example can't stand alone as definitive proof of a greater premise. Let me read that again. In place of logical evidence... This fallacy will substitute examples from someone's personal experience. Arguments that rely heavily on anecdotal evidence tend to overlook the fact that one possibly isolated example can't stand alone as definitive proof of a greater premise. Let me show you how they use this. In Scripture, it goes like this. It appears that some people were sick or weren't healed in Scripture, so therefore God doesn't heal, or it's God's will to heal or not to heal. Because... In Scripture, some people did not get healed. Is that true? Well, we'll find out here, won't we? But the thing is, is that they're taking isolated events and applying it to the mass instead of what happened the majority of the time. Most people did get healed. It's hard to argue that one, whether you can say all or not. What do we do in our lives? Well, we do it this way. I ask a church or anybody, I've I've preached to churches before and I've asked this question. How many people in here believe that God heals today? And almost always, every hand goes up. And if I ask you why, what is the response nine and a half times out of ten? Because God healed grandma, mom, dad, uncle, me, somebody I know. They're taking an anecdotal 
evidence of something that happened in their life and say, yes, God heals because of this fact. Now, if I ask somebody else and they say, well, God did not heal my grandma, my mom, my dad, me. Therefore, God does not heal today, which is true. The problem is they're both going from what? Their anecdotal experience. What is the source? The correct response is, God heals today because he said so. Now, you can drill down from there to get into why maybe somebody wasn't healed or something like that. You begin to work on that part. But the fact that God heals today has no reflection on what your experience with it is. Does God save today? Yes. What proof do you have? What anecdotal experience do you have that proves that God saves people today? Have you been with somebody as they walk into the light? No. You might be there when they're dying, but you didn't walk with them. You guys see what I'm saying? How do we know God saves today? Because he says. You guys see the difference? This is what I'm trying to show you. There's several logical fallacies that are found inside of this, but we do this all the time. We use anecdotal evidence to, to make a case for whatever it is we believe, and the problem is your experience may not match that of somebody else. Your experience is irrelevant. Whether God has healed in your life or has not does not mean that he does or does not. Fair enough? Now let's begin to look at Scripture. Let's break this down. Let's go in the same place. What do we know that God wants to do? God wants to save people. Yes? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, uh, the Lord one is, day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's will, is it not? He does not want anybody to perish, He wants everybody to come to repentance. If that's God's will, then why will some not? You guys see how we're using this? Because if we're going to follow that same string of evidence that we talk about healing, then we have to be the same logic. Well, therefore, everybody's going to get saved, right? Because that is what God wants. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is the good and acceptable in the sight of the God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is God's desire? All men be saved. That is what it says. Is that what's going to happen? No. So we have to be careful with this. We have to be careful with this. So let's begin to look at this. Jesus leaving people sick. Where do we find that? Well, Matthew chapter 13 is the first place. We're going to go through these piece by piece. Look at the gospel and look at the references in the Old Testament and begin to break this down. All right, I'm going to try to not talk too long today. I'm going to try. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. When he had come to his own country. All right, who came? Jesus. What's his country? Nazareth, thank you. He taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Is his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works. 
there because of their unbelief. Now, what do we see? What's his own country? The first thing we know, that's Nazareth. First, we got Jesus, and he went to Nazareth. And then what did he do? He taught in their synagogue. What did he teach? Didn't tell us, did it? But whatever it was, it got their attention. Because they're befuddled. Is this not the son of Mary? Don't we have his sisters and his brothers around us? Where did he get this wisdom? Who does he think he is? And what is Jesus' response? A prophet's not without him. We take this, and we look at this verse, and we look at this passage, it's like, okay, why did Jesus respond that way? Well, they were offended at him, weren't they? See, these people here that were taught, they were offended. They're offended at what he said. They're offended at what he did. So what it was the result of that? It says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Does it say any? No, it says many. It doesn't say he didn't do any. It says he didn't do many. There is a difference, right? For you grammar folks out there, that's not the same word. So, we begin to look at this and say, okay, what is going on here? We see Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, began to teach. We don't know what he taught, but these people did not like what they heard. They were offended at it. And so as a result of that, he couldn't do much. Fair enough? Now, let's go to Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Let's see if we can get any more details here. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country. Where's that at? Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and are not his sisters with us? So they were offended at him. Does this sound like the same story? Absolutely. Now we get the fact that Jesus is a carpenter. We've gotten that little nugget of information there. We know now that it is the Sabbath. If that matters, it may or may not. But they're astonished by what they hear, and they're trying to figure out where he gets these things. But what else? Such mighty works are performed by his hands. So it wasn't just what he taught, but it was also what he did. Fair enough? What mighty works are we referring to? We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. And so we see the same story begin to repeat itself. They are there, and what happens? Well, they get offended again at him. It says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there. Isn't that sad? So he couldn't do any mighty works. Is that where it ended? No, actually it doesn't. It said, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbeliefs, and he went about teaching the, uh, about the villages and circuit teaching. So, who did he heal? All he laid his hands on. Is that what it says? Who did he leave sick? None that he laid his hands on. Fair enough? Let's look at Luke chapter 4. It's going to become a little bit more clear. We're going to break this down just a little bit more. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. We've read this before. So he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty all those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say with, to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's sons? Now what did we get? Now we got what he taught. This is the same story. And we also know what he did in that moment because I taught on this a few weeks ago. At that point, he sits down at what's known as the seat of Moses. The seat of Moses was reserved for Messiah. And he gets their attention with this. They begin to ask the same question. Wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? But now we get a little bit more detail. Verse 23. He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was great famine throughout all the land. But, none of them was Eli- uh, but to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue... When they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to, to the brow of the hill of which the city was built, and they, that they might throw him down over the cliff, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now this is where it gets interesting, because he quotes two Old Testament passages. Now you being a good student of the Bible, as you read something about this, what should you do? How about we go to the Old Testament and see what was going on? Let's not make assumptions, let's take a look. So the first one, dealing with the widow, is in 1 Kings chapter 17. So since some of you are still working with the paper Bible, I'm going to give you one second to flip over. I'm mainly looking at my wife. Most of you guys are caught up by now, but she's old school. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now we know what's going on here, right? It's not going to rain. Jesus just quotes this, it's not going to rain. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, get away from here and turn eastward and hide at the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed at the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Seems like a pretty good arrangement. He's following what God had told him. He goes there, stays there. The ravens bring him food and bring him water. Or not water, but bring him food. Meat and bread. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. So now we know where we are, right? Jesus quotes this passage. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. And he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called unto her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives. Why does she say it like that? Because she's not an Israelite. As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread. Only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar, 
And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. There's a famine going on. This is their last meal. She's out of hope. What happens to a widow at this time period? Who took care of them? Nobody. If you were an Israelite, who was supposed to take care of them? Family. Supposed to step in. But this is not an Israelite nation. So, they don't necessarily have these laws. So she's on her own, fending for herself. And just like in, in Israel, it was like this all around the world. A woman had no real way of taking care of herself at that time. Plus, she has a son. And so she's just preparing, like, I'm going to cook one more meal, and we're going to ride this thing as long as we can. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and, and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So this is what happened. It happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? He stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. So there was two supernatural occurrences that took place. Elijah was following the direction of the Lord, goes to the widow, goes through this whole rigmarole. Sure enough, the oil didn't run out, nor did the bin run dry. Then the child dies, and he is revived by Elijah. And what does this woman, who is not a follower of Yahweh, say? Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is true. Fair enough? All right, so now we see the story at the background that Jesus quoted. This is one example. Let's look at the next one. Verse 25, back there in Luke. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But none of them was, uh, none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, let's look at this one. This comes from 1 Kings chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of, the, of king of Syria, was great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on the raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master was with the prophet who is in Samaria... For he would heal him of his leprosy. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? An Israelite girl is with a non-Israelite family, but is very confident in what the prophet can do for, for him. 
And Naaman went in and told his master and said, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. So the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Now stop. Why was it necessary for that king to send this letter with Naaman? What normally happens when Syrians are going to Israelites? They're going to war. So this is a thing of peace. He's sending him, but he's telling him what's going to happen. That you may heal him of his leprosy. Pretty matter of fact, isn't it? Expectations are pretty high, aren't they? All right, let's go on. Verse 7. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Now, what's the king's response? He's thinking that this is all a setup because he knows he can't do it. And so you're sitting here to bring the impossible because how many people have been healed of leprosy in the nation of Israel in all its existence? None. Not one. So here we go. Verse 8, so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your, clo torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now what is a prophet? A representative of God. Fair enough? So, Elisha's not worried. Send him my direction. I'll take care of this. Verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, what does he think is going to happen? He's ready. He doesn't know, but he's ready. Verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. I don't know what Naaman was expecting, but I assure you it wasn't that. Verse 11, but Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. He's expecting big song and dance by the name of the Lord. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage, and his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Now that's a great statement. Because if he had told them, go and make a sacrifice of all the animals you have, take all the money that you have and give it away, would he have not have done it? Absolutely. Do we not do that today? You want to be healed, give in to the offering. You laugh, but I mean, if I'm in a service where I am praying for sick people, we don't take up offerings, ever. If I go to a different church, I will not let them do it. You know why? Because somebody's going to think if I just write a big enough check, God's going to move on my behalf. That's not how that works. So we don't do it. And that's exactly how he would have been. So they start to reason with him. Verse 14, so he went down. He dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. How much faith do you think he had there? None. He's like, fine, I'll do it. 
And he returned to the man of God, he and all his A's, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Does that not sound familiar? That's the exact same. Is he an Israelite? No. So we see a familiar statement that we just read. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. He wants to be grateful and give it to Elisha. And he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. There's a lot of preachers today that can learn something from that. So Naaman said, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to the other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down to the temple of Ramon. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And he said, go in peace. And he departed him a short distance. What's he looking for? He's taking dirt. Then were the land of God with him that he may offer sacrifice to Yahweh there. And he's looking for repentance, saying, I have to do this. Please seek pardon for me. But what do we see? We see two examples of non-Israelites astonished and set free by the word of the Lord. Now I know there is no God but Yahweh. What's going on in that passage that we read in Luke? We see there, it's kind of like a precursor. Did the Israelites accept Jesus as Messiah? No. So he went to the Gentiles. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. What's happening there is he's being rejected by what is going on because it's just like every other time. How many lepers were in Israel during the time of Elijah and Elisha and all those? We don't know. But we know they were there. How many of them got healed? None. So now let's go back to Luke and look at verse 23. He said to him, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Now, this physician to heal yourself is actually from the Greek text. It means heal your kin. But it was a proverb that was around at that time. It wasn't just a, a, a Christian thing, so to speak. There was way more to it. Now, here's the thing. It says something there. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here in your country. So then you should ask the question, well, what did he do in Capernaum? Well, he healed the centurion's servant there. He healed the paralytic and forgave him of his sins there. He healed the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years there. He healed Jairus' daughter and raised her from the dead. And he also healed two blind men there. Where's Capernaum at? I think I got a map. Do I have a map? I don't have a map? I should get a map. I don't have a map. I'll look for another map next week. But Capernaum's up north. It's not very far from Nazareth. It's up on the edge of the Red Sea there. So why didn't he do many works? Well, let's go back and look at this. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. All right, it says unbelief. But what do we see before that? Verse 57, they were offended at him. Let's go to Mark chapter 6. Verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters with us? So they were offended at him. Verse 5, he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people. Look at Luke 4. 
Verse 28, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and he rose up and thrust him out of the city, and we already know the rest of that. What was going on here? If you're offended by somebody, are you going to allow them to minister to you in any way? No. We know why they were offended, because of what he taught, and what he read in, in Isaiah 61. But the thing is, is it didn't say he didn't do any work. Who did he heal? Everybody who came to him. I call that a 100% ratio. I went to public school, maybe my math's off. Who did he leave behind sick? Those who wanted to be. You guys see what I'm saying here? Look at the fallacy in this. We are making a bunch of assumptions that he is walking past people saying, no, nope, not going to heal you, not going to heal you. Congratulations, Yola, you made the cut. Today's your day. That's not what happened. He healed everybody who came to him. In fact, let's just do a quick quiz. Tell me the examples that when somebody came to Jesus that he said, no, it is not my will, or that he laid hands on them and they were not healed. I'll wait. You can't think of any. You know why? Because there aren't any. Okay? The other thing that we know is in John chapter 21, verse 24, it says this. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that were written. Amen. What does that mean? That means that this is not an exhaustive list of everything and the only things that Jesus did. These are a few isolated events in the ministry and life of Jesus that we have written down for our benefit. So why were they not healed? They were not healed because they, didn't, they were offended by him and he didn't even get the opportunity to minister to him. How many did Jesus heal? Everybody that came to him. Do you guys see that? Do you see that we just kicked over a sacred cow? Wasn't that fun? Wasn't that complicated? Wasn't that hard? Didn't even hurt a bit. Now, let's look at these other guys real quick. We're just about done. Let's go jump over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's look at Trophimus here. I'm just reading the end of this. You guys know Timothy. Uh, he was a, a student of Paul's. He's pastor in Ephesus. Greet Prisca and Aquila, the household of, of Nisra, that, that guy. Erastus stayed in Corinth. But Trophimus, I have left in Miletus sick. What does that tell you? Well, the assumption must be that Paul does not have the ability to heal the sick because he left one behind. Except we know that he did have the ability to heal the sick because he healed a lot of sick, right? We see that. So therefore, he must have had it, but the gift of healing had been removed. You know why? Because Scripture is pretty much done by that point. This is where we begin to go down these, these rabbit trails. Well, one thing that we can do is we can begin to look at, well, let's look at the word sick and see what it means. So, let's pull this up. This is the word sick. I am not going to attempt to pronounce the Greek word for this. Okay? You're welcome. You notice here there are basically two primary meanings. One is to be sick. What's the other one? To be weak. This is the most used time that they are translated these ways. Do I have my pointer here? I don't know if I do or not. Maybe I don't. To be sick or to be weak. Now that's interesting that it phrases it that way. Now let me show you how this is used in the Septuagint. This is this one here. That says primarily to be weak or to be feeble. There are a whole bunch of other, you see hungry, hopeless, powerless, insignificant. In other words, you're kind of having a bad day. What is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So, we see the two primary uses of this word is sick and weak. 
Well, let's look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 20 in the Young Living Translation. Remember, this is just a literal word-for-word translation. Erastus did remain in Corinth, and Trophimus I left in Miletus infirm. So, I dug into this word affirm. What does this word infirm mean? Here's the definition. Not physically strong, especially through age, or irresolute, or weak. It's interesting that it chooses to use that word. Because it sounds like almost as if maybe he's just worn out. Do you know how they got from one town to the next? They walked. You know how like there are some of us in this room who are willing to drive an hour to eat chicken wings? You know who you are. Yes, it's me. In case you didn't know, it's me. If I had to walk, how many chicken wings do you think Chris is going to consume that day? The answer is zero. Okay? This is how they got around. And guess what? They weren't always the nicest conditions. Is it possible that these people got worn out and needed a day off? A break. If you've never been in ministry, I can assure you that there are strains of ministry just like there are in any profession. I mean, ask a farmer come around harvest time. How tired are they? They're really tired. They got work to do. They got to get it done. Well, let's look at Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 25, it says, Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. But your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now, here is who Epaphroditus was. He was the Philippians' messenger. They, Paul was in prison. They put this gift, and they send him out there to him. As I said, travel conditions at those times, extremely dangerous, extremely harsh, especially in the late fall, early spring. It was one of these things that you're out there in the, in the elements. It takes a long time to get anywhere. You're going to run across people that are going to try to rob you, kill you, all of this kind of stuff. He gets there, and what's it say? He was sick almost unto death. But you know what he didn't do? He did not die. In fact, we see that he gets sent back. And he said, God showed mercy on him unless I be super sad too with the rest of you. But we look here, it says, because for the, in verse 30, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. In other words, he did not count his own life. He pushed through every circumstance and situation. And when he finally got to Paul, he was just exhausted. Could he have had a sickness? Sure. Does it matter? No, because God raised him up. In fact, this is an argument in favor that God heals today. But you've got to look at it correctly. I mean, pagans prayed to their God for healing. They, you know, uh, the, the symbol that they used, the little, uh, I should have got a picture of this, the thing with the two snakes that are going around, I can't think of what that's called, it starts with an A, Asclepius or something like that. Like that is a pagan God for healing. We use it in our medical profession. I don't know that there's a correlation there, so don't go down some weird conspiracy trail. All right? But Jewish people also prayed to, and they would praise God 
Yahweh for the healing of their body as well as the forgiveness of their sins. When they prayed, they were praying healing of the body, forgiveness of the sins, like those two things were somehow connected. So again, as we see here, we are seeing that this is exactly what we expect it to be. But let's look at one more because this is the biggie. Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. He just told Timothy, who has frequent infirmity, something with his stomach, we don't know what, essentially go on a bender. Right? Not even close. Apparently, Timothy was drinking only water. Paul's encouraging him to mix a little wine with that. Do you know why? Well, because that's how it worked. You didn't drink the water. You would get dysentery. They would mix it with wine. You know why? The fermentation of the wine would kill all the bad stuff that's in the water. It's no different than today. When you go to a foreign country, you don't drink the water. Do you know why? It can have explosive results. You brush your teeth with bottles of water. I was in Mexico, and uh, we were working on this Bible school. In fact, it was the director's house, and I'm standing on this brick ledge with my hand over a window, and I've got a sledgehammer in his hand, and I'm trying to pound the, the bricks off this side, and the bricks underneath of me gave way, and I fell, and a chunk of metal, I've got a scar here, jabbed into my arm. And I mean, I'm bleeding like a stuck hog. And so they're like, oh my goodness. And so they're wanting to run my arm under the water. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, 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 I got this. And they said, we're going to take you to the hospital. And I said, I'm not going to no Mexican hospital, okay? I can tell you that right now. Like, they just cut my arm off. I didn't know what was going on. I was fine. It was not that big a deal. They were just overreacting. So what was going on here? See, if you look at the context of it, Timothy was abstaining from alcohol, 100%. Back then, what we have as alcohol today is considered strong drink, even the beer and the wine. Back then, the fermentation, it was two parts water to one part wine. It was the equivalent of NyQuil. And that is what they drank. They did not, what we have today is, is considered strong drink by, uh, by those standards. But he was completely abstaining. You know why? Because he was a pastor. And he was setting an example. And if you read the context of what's going on here, that's exactly what's happening. And Paul is saying, hey, don't just drink the water. Mix it up a little bit. So, these are the three sacred cows we looked at. Do you guys see where God clearly doesn't heal anymore? Doesn't that make perfect sense? You see, the problem is, is when you want to believe something, you'll look at confirmation bias and you will find the answers you seek. We want to see what Scripture says. Do you know why we're spending so much time talking about this? Because it's important to God. It's like, this isn't my goal in life is to just preach about healing and all that other kind of stuff. I just do it because this is what God says and all I want is the truth. As I told you a week or two ago, it'd be a lot easier if I didn't believe this because now there's no expectation. But we have a responsibility to God to follow Him wherever He leads and to believe His truths. So, next week we're going to dive into this stuff a little bit, a little bit deeper, specifically about Paul's thorn, because I assure you it's not what you think it is. So let's pray and we'll get out of here. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it's true.